Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello. This is Wittenberg 2 Vampires, a special crossover between two Agora shows, Wittenberg to Westphalia, and Tiny Vampires. Before we get into the crossover itself, we just wanted to let you know that the topic is so broad, and frankly, we felt it was so interesting, that we couldn't shut up. And it turned into a one and a half hour long episode. So we decided to split it into two segments. And this is part one of the two part crossover on the early modern period and medieval illness in the military. So on to our conversation. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. My show, for those who are not listening on my feed, is about the history of Europe, with a special focus on the wars of religion in the early modern period, though I honestly haven't gotten that far quite yet. But today is a special episode. I'm joined by Raven Forrest Viscalzo of the Tiny Vampires podcast. Hi. Uh, My show is about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. Uh, Mosquitoes, fleas, ticks, that sort of thing. I take questions from listeners about these topics and explain them, uh, not only answering their questions, but also telling the story of the scientists who conducted those experiments and how they went about their investigations. I record here at the University of Notre Dame, where I'm receiving my master's degree in neurophysiology and behavior of insects. So we're here today to talk about a place where our interests overlap. Uh, Before we do, though, uh, I think you can probably guess this already, but I would just want to note that while both of our shows are usually fairly family-friendly, today we're going to be discussing a number of fairly Baroque illnesses, and maybe this would not be a show to enjoy whilst eating. For those sensitive to such subjects, uh, just please be warned. Yes, it's uh, it's going to be pretty clinical, but these were real illnesses suffered by real people, so I'm going to try not to sugarcoat things. Now, it might not seem that there's much overlap between a show about broad European history with a focus on war and religion, and then a show on modern illness research. But, of course, insects did not start biting people and giving them exciting illnesses in modern times. In fact, humans have been getting exciting illnesses for all of human history. Yeah, but not just human history. Uh, we, We have evidence that animals have been plagued by parasites, viruses, and fungal infections just about as far back as the historical record goes. So we have a lot of material to work with. Uh, That said, we humans have not always been very good at knowing the sources of our illness. 
For most of documented history, attempts by doctors to categorize illnesses by symptoms and find effective treatments were somewhat confounded by the uh, traditional naturalistic worldviews common to that time and place. In Europe, the Aristotelian concept of the four humors was the theoretical framework into which doctors were trying to cram their observations for uh, more than a thousand years. Combine this with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and the fact that the chroniclers of the Middle Ages focused more on truth rather than facts, and we are left with a fairly rudimentary record of illnesses in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. As an example, uh, in my show we talked a bit about the King uh, Arnulf of the East Franks. Reggio of Prum said that he fell ill with paralysis while in Italy, and then was carried home to Germany, where he lingered for some time before dying. My old friend, Liutprand of Cremona, says that Arnulf was poisoned, but also that he was tormented by lice until he died. Uh, Liutprand, it should be said, had a... Well, he wasn't really on a first-name basis with truth, so many serious historians discount his side of the tale, but what is paralysis? It could be a huge range of things. Yes, it could have been anything from a stroke to something called tick paralysis, which is when the toxins in a tick saliva cause a paralysis starting at the feet and moving upward. If it reaches the diaphragm, the person can no longer breathe, and uh, without treatment, they actually die. But if the tick is found and removed, it can, like, the person can actually fully recover within 24 hours. There are even viruses that are carried by mosquitoes that cause Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is uh, a similar paralysis. Interesting. In many of these individual cases, we aren't likely to ever figure out what actually happened to them. In outbreak cases, we're more likely to be able to find evidence for specific diseases because there's more likely to be archaeological evidence and even written records describing the symptoms. From a biologist's perspective, determining outbreaks from the past can tell us a lot about how these different pathogens evolved and how they moved from one ge geographic region to another. What value do you see in uh, finding a diagnosis from a historical perspective? There's kind of a lot of benefits on a bunch of different levels. From a purely historical perspective, stringing together different illnesses can help us learn about can help us draw out some themes in history, like why particular areas were able to win conflicts repeatedly uh, and things like that. But then history also acts in our world to provide sort of raw material case studies that inform other wider social sciences. And historians often are acting just to, to make sure that the baseline record is somewhat comprehensible, that other experts can then come in and take out pieces and, and learn things from that. Learning about how illnesses affected societies in the past can help us better organize our societies today. Um, and that's why the combination of efforts between historians, archaeologists, and scientists that's been happening in the past 40 years or so has been very exciting. Um, and it's produced benefits even for me in my day job where I'm an urban planner. Uh, and so looking at things like public health has been very interesting. 
Yeah, there's some really interesting scientific techniques uh, being in, used in the field today. Uh, forensic pathologist Angelique Corthals from Stony Brook University actually diagnosed a 500-year-old South American mummy with tuberculosis by identifying uh, telltale proteins that were produced in by the mummy's immune system that were on the mummy's lips. So they didn't even have to do any kind of invasive um, uh, specimen collection off of this mummy. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. So um, in another case, the DNA from a victim's teeth also provided a lot of information about the famous plague of Athens, uh, which was determined to have been caused by typhoid fever. That DNA laid in these mass graves since 430 BC. That's crazy. So Ben, yeah. So Ben, what uh, do researchers do when they have a hard time finding like these this physical evidence to base things on? Well, when archaeological evidence is unavailable, uh, historians fall back on what they're generally more comfortable with, which is actually documentary records. Uh, for example, in the case of Arnulf, which I was talking about just before, we don't learn much about his death per se from the records about him as an individual. And of course, we don't really know where his body is, so there's no archaeological evidence. But if we broaden our search out and be critical about what we're getting, of course, um, we can look at the deaths of his relatives, and we learn from that that his father, grandfather, and several other relatives all died from similar paralysis conditions, or heart conditions. Well, many did die after invading Italy, which makes it so you can't completely rule out like tropical illnesses and exotic diseases like that. The general consensus is that the family probably had some sort of genetic disposition towards strokes, heart conditions, and things like that. Mm. So today we're going to have a little fun and bring you a little historical detective work. Um, following on from where we left off in my show, uh, we're going to discuss the kinds of mass-scale illnesses that afflicted armies on campaign in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. Uh, focusing on this just will keep this already probably going to be a long episode from being ridiculous. Yeah, we'll do our best. <laughs> Raven will help us out by explaining the biological science of the illness, and I will regale you with the historical tales uh, and some of the environmental conditions that would have factored into things. Yeah, this should be really interesting. Uh, most of my work involves uh, neglected tropical diseases like Chagas disease or emerging diseases like Zika. So it should be fun to dive into some of these more well-understood historical pathogens. So given what we've discussed in the last few episodes of my show, which have been focusing on the military systems of the, uh, the Middle Ages before 1300 or so, uh, it should probably not be a surprise that the most common military illnesses of the era were nutritional deficiencies like scurvy and night blindness. What can you tell us about these illnesses, Raven? Yeah, of course. Uh, scurvy is a condition caused by a lack of vitamin C. It starts off with general weakness, aches and pains, uh, especially pain in the legs. For many, it was probably hard to tell the difference between this pain and the pain from marching for days on end or sleeping on the ground. <laughs> Soldiers and sailors with scurvy would start to see severe symptoms like red bumps on their legs around their hair follicles after about three months of being on this poor army diet. These bumps would grow and then merge together into these massive bruises all over the legs. 
Uh, next, their gums would start to bleed at the slightest touch. So you could see how like eating something would be incredibly painful. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So do you know anything about the dental hygiene of the time? Um, it, well, it really wouldn't pass modern muster. Uh, but... Yeah, <laughs> I imagine not. <laughs> the records aren't... Not a, not a lot of uh, crest back No, then. no. Uh, and they didn't know about fluoride until like, I don't even know when, but it's fairly modern discovery. Um, mm. So the records are scanty about this kind of thing, but hygiene here, from what we know, was really more in the aesthetic realm than in the health realm. <laughs> People, mm. you know, know that they don't like bad smells. And so this is going to be a theme, by the way. Um People know that they don't like bad breath, and so efforts would be made to clean the teeth because there was pretty clearly a link. Most of the time, they would probably end up using soft twigs. Um, they would have like a special tooth stick that they would use until it completely wore out. Birches were a good uh, good example that people would seek out to get their tooth sticks. Um, they happened to taste good also when you were rubbing them, so, so that was nice. Um, people who couldn't get at trees would use rags, uh, often in combination with a, an abrasive medium, and that would help them clean their teeth. Uh, needless to say, modern toothbrushes, uh, or even the tooth powders of the early Industrial Revolution were, were just not really available. Um, it seems unlikely to me that the peasantry made a daily practice of, like, scraping their teeth. I mean, who knows, but it, it doesn't seem like they that makes a... that there's some sort of you know, regular recommended morning regimen. Most information that we have about dental health focused on methods of tooth extraction and replacement. Uh, a lot of times this was done by quote-unquote surgeon barbers, which is actually the origin of those twisty uh, poles that you see. It was originally bloody bandages. So barber shops have those poles. Yeah, gross. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to look at a barber shop the same yeah, way again. They, they mostly focused on doing quote-unquote mundane surgery like tooth extraction. Um, but, you know, even the services of a surgeon barber would be more or less restricted to the relatively well-off or people in urban areas. In the uh, in the, the villages, you know, we don't really know exactly what they would have done. Presumably, if a tooth hurt enough, they'd know that they wanted to get it out, but who knows what they would how they would have done it. Just to balance out this image that we might have, um, peasants had almost no access to sugar, and their bread was very heavy in fiber, which may have improved dental health, except that the bread, um, which was the mainstay of their diet, was also very uh, heavily dosed with stone grit from the milling process that they used. So there's a fair amount of debate about what dental health was actually like for peasantry. Um, and it says something about historians that this is an active topic of discussion, I guess. So, well, uh, poor dental hygiene definitely compounded these scurvy issues. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so after their gums would start bleeding, uh, next blood would start pooling in their joints, causing serious pain. And eventually they would actually be bedridden. They could no longer mm. march. So if they continued to be malnourished, um, heart and lung problems would follow. And if they weren't provided high doses of vitamin C within, you know, in time, they would actually go into shock and die. And being is that they didn't know what was actually causing it, it you know, this, this seems fairly yeah. likely. On its face, these symptoms seem to be unrelated, but what connects them is 
uh, this protein called collagen. Vitamin C is crucial to the production of collagen, and it what's it's what makes your skin and your blood vessels flexible. If it's faulty because there isn't enough vitamin C around to make it properly, then blood vessels start to leak. That leaking is what's causing all of these different symptoms. In, in actuality, it's actually surprisingly similar to hem- hemorrhagic viral infections like Ebola in that way. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, of course, as a avid chef, my, my uh, closest association with collagen is that it's what makes ribs delicious. But, uh, <laughs> and it's what the, the ancestor of gelatin. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So an interesting thing that I learned is that the word scurvy almost definitely came into usage during the, the Middle Ages in Northern Europe, uh, with similar words emerging in Northern German and Scandinavian dialects around the same time. And uh, of course, uh, that includes Old Anglo-Saxon. Uh, of course, people in these areas, if they stuck to a Western agrarian lifestyle, would have had no access to fresh vegetables for most of the winter, and meat was likely limited to what they could hunt. Uh, interestingly, though, the the Sami and the uh, what we might call Inuit peoples of the Arctic Circle, they didn't have real problems with scurvy because uh, there's certain species of uh, aquatic mammals that they hunt fairly regularly. It's a mainstay of their diet, and their skin actually contains large amounts of vitamin C, which uh, is something I learned from watching Planet Earth. So that's cool. Yeah. Or actually, it was nice. Human Planet. but David Attenborough. That's the important thing. Yeah. That's that's the key part. That's the <laughs> that's part that's important. Part, yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't have any examples for this, but there's a, a similar disease that we might want to just mention really quickly. Raven, uh, you have something to say about night blindness? Yeah, night blindness is uh, it's it's kind of a similar situation, but it's with a, uh, it's a vitamin A deficiency instead of a vitamin C. It typically starts with poor um, low light vision, thus the name. Mm-hmm. This happens because A is a crucial ingredient in the creation of light receptors in our rod cells. So calling back to our biology classes. Uh, <laughs> um, so light goes in through your cornea, uh, through your pupil, and then it hits the back of your eye where your retina is. And your retina is made up of cone cells and rod cells. The cone cells are high light. Uh, in, they're sensitive to high light intensity and colors. And while your rods are for dim light sensitivity. So that's why when it's dark, you can still see, but you can't really see any colors. Oh, that's After the rods stop working, a condition called keratomalacia, uh, which is basically just means bad keratin, uh, <laughs> begins to happen. So uh, this is the softening of the cornea, which causes it to kind of fold and droop and even develop ulcers, which uh, eventually leads to total blindness. And then pieces of tissue called epithelial uh, or epithelia then can also start building up inside the cornea, which causes this um, like foamy, silvery look to the to the cornea. And it it just keeps building up until, like, no light can pass through the cornea, which also causes complete blindness. So you have these three conditions kind of all building on top of each other, 
Um, so it's it's not even though it's called night blindness, it starts off that way, but it eventually leads to total blindness. That sounds horrible. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's uh, and there's there's pretty much no way around it except for just um, really high doses of vitamin A. And you can imagine that people wouldn't readily make that connection between what they're eating and their ability to see. Right. And it actually wouldn't surprise people to hear that suffering from both of these conditions at the same time was pretty common because often the food that contains vitamin C also contains vitamin A. So things like leafy greens and pumpkins and carrots, you know, if, if they're lacking in, in these sorts of things in their diet, then they're going to end up with both of these conditions at the same time. So the most direct evidence that we have of these kinds of illnesses in the military sphere comes, interestingly, from the Chronicles of the Crusades, uh, which is going to be another theme, um, but in particular, the Fifth Crusade. For those of you not up on your Crusader history, uh, the Fifth Crusade was sort of a cartoonish fiasco in which a bunch of crusading armies failed to cooperate and attacked in a bunch of different directions at the same time uh, and ultimately failed to achieve much. But the most uh, concentrated and successful part of the crusade uh, was based on sort of an observation that attacking directly into the Levant, which is, you know, where um, Israel and Palestine and Jordan and Syria are now, um, that hadn't been working out so good for the last couple of crusades. So maybe they should try attacking Egypt. Uh, This isn't completely crazy because Egypt did, was sort of politically influential in the Levant. Um, But it also, well, anyway, as a result, uh, 35,000 men ended up laying siege to the port of Diameta at one of the mouths of the Nile. They basically ended up bottled up on the beach, and the Crusaders had to live off the supplies from the ships as they attempted to take the city. While they were eventually reinforced by a second fleet, the Crusaders aggravated their trouble by strictly observing Lent. For those unfamiliar with this practice, faithful Catholics would give up a major dietary element in preparation for the celebration of Easter, which is fairly important. In the Middle Ages, uh, the most common thing to give up was meat. So for the Crusaders, who didn't have any access to vegetables on the beach, uh, this left them eating only grains and quote-unquote unwholesome fish, whatever that means. Uh, They did not consider fish to be meat, um, so how might uh, this dietary issue have been a problem? Yeah, as, as a vegetarian, I, I do not endorse this fish or meat. Um, <laughs> so um, th- this is kind of apropos, as uh, you know, many people might know, uh, the University of Notre Dame, uh, where I attend, is actually a Catholic university. And there's a lot of people observing Lent right now. Uh, so I've kind of been learning about it from, from that perspective. Uh, so... To answer your question, reducing meat intake would have actually reduced the body's access to protein and iron. And the bleeding that's caused by scurvy plus the reduction of iron in their diet could actually cause serious anemia. Because you can think that, uh, yes, the blood is still in their bodies, but it's not actually in their circulatory system. It's pooling in their joints. And, and in their gums. So um, so it's kind of just compounding an issue. It's, it's uh, malnutrition on top of another malnutrition. Yeah, yeah. It's like a cascading effect. So, yeah, definitely. Um, so the result of all this, uh, according to some work 
done by by modern historians working with the chronicles and some some related records they think that between 15 to 20 percent of the clergy in the crusade uh during the siege died um and they think that casualties amongst the rank and file who would have had uh, less resources that was probably higher um the the surgeon barbers who were with the army were unsure how to treat the illness uh and so they um, basically just ended up slicing off the afflicted flesh in the soldiers' gums so that they could at least eat. <laughs> um, <Ow>. <laughs> which, yeah, uh, dental torture, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> which actually, you know, that's probably not a bad treatment given that it's a vitamin deficiency. It's just they would have needed to pair that with actually giving them the right vitamins. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the crusade leadership did useful things like refusing to negotiate, even in the face of uh, an offer where the leaders of Egypt offered to trade Jerusalem, which they did actually control, for Diameta. Um, so the, the leaders refused that offer, despite, you know, retaking Jerusalem sort of being the point of a crusade. Ah, uh, bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the crusaders eventually took Diameta, and then the leaders of the crusade continued to refuse to negotiate. Uh, basically, uh, they, they instead tried to preach to the local Muslim inhabitants in between spasms of violence against them. Uh, at this point, the army sort of, a good portion of the army decided to stop following them anymore. And the people who were still loyal to the original leaders decided to follow them and continue attempting to conquer Egypt. So a significantly um, lessened force down from 35,000, then marched off into the uh, maze of rivers, canals, islands, and swamps that is the Nile Delta, where they were very predictably isolated on an island and wiped out. <laughs> it's, it's like um, in horror movies. It's like, why are you running upstairs? <laughs> so treatments for scurvy started to be developed during the Age of Discovery. Um, people sort of made the link between limes and citrus fruits and fresh vegetables with with the illness. Um, and the British Navy started making this a regular part of the ration. Uh, interestingly, um, grog, which you hear about in pirate movies, was a, a mixture of rum and limes, which helped uh, sanitize the water in terms of the, the rum, and then the limes helped prevent scurvy. So that's that's always interesting. Yeah. That, that sounds like a treatment I'd be down for. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, I, I used to make it a lot. It's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I'm, I'm just preventing scurvy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's medicine. <laughs> so the interesting thing, though, is they made this connection with limes, but the exact functional cause eluded doctors until the 20th century. Um, as late as World War I, people thought, some doctors thought that there might be a bacteriological or a virological cause. Uh, and so it was relatively late that the scientific community sort of all came together and agreed that the the roles of that it was vitamin C deficiency. Uh, part of that was just that they actually hadn't discovered vitamins and minerals and the role they played in health until fairly late. Um, one of the big final events that that made the connection was a, a fairly spectacular failure of the British Army in Mesopotamia during the early stages of World War One. Now that that story is, is fairly outside of our writ. Uh, even given the very flexible definitions of the Middle Ages and early modern that I use. Uh, so I do encourage you to go, go check out uh, Wellesley Livesey's History of the Great War podcast. There's a nice like episode-long digression on that, which is really fascinating. So, 
Starvation diseases were the most common in the military of the Middle Ages and early modern period, uh, but of course they were not alone. Um, typhus is also known as camp fever and about a half dozen different other things. Uh, it was probably also a fairly major killer. Uh, from a historical perspective, typhus is both very old and relatively new. The name was coined by Hippocrates uh, in the ancient world, and it described a sort of state of confusion as if one were in a fog. But then, like I said at the beginning of this episode, terminology was not exact. Um, the term is etymologically related to typhoid, which has led to a lot of confusion between the illnesses. Uh, and, it, you know, it was never really clear what specific illnesses people were talking about. And then most of the time, people didn't even make the connection to talking about typhus or typhoid. So, uh, Raven, can you help us clear some of this up? Yeah. So to this day, it's it's actually a pretty like typhus itself is a pretty serious issues in areas where people are packed together and don't have the opportunity for proper hygiene. So especially in places like refugee camps and um, after major natural disasters, people are kind of huddled closely and um, don't have access to a lot of facilities. Mm -hmm. So to go back to the, this whole complication of names, uh, so typhoid and typhus are two completely different, totally unrelated diseases. Um, and then on top of that, typhus is actually, uh, there's actually three different forms of typhus. So there's scrub typhus, murine typhus, and epidemic typhus, which are related diseases, but they're not the same. So murine typhus and scrub typhus are caused by um, uh, the transmission of these bacteria through bites of mites and fleas, respectively. So here we're talking about ep epidemic typhus, which is transmitted by body lice. But luckily for anyone with uh, elementary school-aged children, it's not transmitted by head lice. Um, body lice, unlike pubic lice and head lice, don't live actually on the body, but rather in the victim's clothes and bedding and blankets. They're, they're more similar to bed bugs like that. Oh, okay, cool. That actually makes me feel slightly better, given my yeah. <laughs> almost three-year-old daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, head lice are, are, you know, they're nasty and hard to get rid of, but they thankfully don't carry any diseases. Okay, that's good. In any case, the, the use of the word became fairly nonspecific during the Middle Ages, as I said, um, and many cases of the various kinds of typhus uh, probably hit amongst the many camp diseases of the Middle Ages. The most solid early classification we have of typhus in the records is probably from 1489. In, in that year, the forces of their most Catholic majesties, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, uh, the kingdoms of Spain, I should say, uh, began a siege of a city called Beza. Now, this was part of their final push to destroy Granada, which was basically the last Islamic uh, principality in Iberia. And this is the process called Reconquista, by which, which sort of is generally applied to the process by which the, the small Catholic kingdoms of northern Spain gradually took back the entire peninsula. Now, Beza was itself absurdly well located from a defensive standpoint. It was built in the mountains, in rough terrain, and it required the army to be split into two groups to even surround it, and because it was located in such rough terrain, it really negated the value of artillery. 
And then uh, spring rains came, which swelled the rivers and turned the camps of the attacking armies into uh, basically seas of mud. During the siege, enemy action killed about 3,000 people, um, and a total of about 20,000 people died, which means that about 17,000 people died from other causes other than enemy action, which is mostly attributed to an outbreak of disease that's been identified as typhus. Yeah, in, in crowded situations like those of the soldiers in uh, Spain, lice can move fairly easily from one blanket to another. Since since they didn't know that these diseases were caused by lice, dead soldiers' belongings would go to another soldier spreading the disease. So you can imagine if you didn't have a blanket, your bunkmate dies, his blanket's just sitting there, <laughs> you grab it, and yeah. next thing you know, you just get sick from the thing he just had. As, so, um, As we've covered in my show, looting is a, a very important part of military activity in this time. Yeah, and uh, they they certainly paid for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so once a soldier was bit by an infected louse uh, from from one of these blankets that he found, you know, the the louse would you know cause irritation. Of course, you can you could feel it biting you, so you squat it or scratch at it, and this crushes the insect and releasing the bacteria into this fresh wound and then into the poor guy's bloodstream. The illness would then come on suddenly with headaches, chills, fevers, coughing, and severe muscle pain. And after a few days, dark spots would develop on on their body. Around 40% of the people infected ended up dying without having any treatment, which, of course, they wouldn't have. So... To round that up a little bit, um, typhus then is it's an illness carried by lice, and lice can be very pernicious. They live in the clothing. Um, it was really only the rise of modern insecticides that has allowed those of us who live in the developed world to really banish them from close familiarity. But their populations can be controlled by basic hygiene, uh, things like bathing regularly, and in, in terms of these kinds of lice, I guess, changing your clothes, changing the sheets on your bed can do a lot to control the population and spread of lice. Uh, Of course, the advent of modern washing machines and dryers would contribute greatly to the effectiveness of these measures. But let's remind ourselves of the conditions in an army camp in the Middle Ages, and the early modern period by extension. Bathing was fairly rare, though it wasn't banned by the church, which some people still claim that's silly. Uh, But it wasn't understood that regular bathing was a big deal, and so people did it less often. I've seen estimates of bathing happening sort of monthly for civilian peasants and villages. People in the army may have had more or less opportunities for bathing, depending on the circumstances. Probably less, uh, but it depends on the type of campaign. In any event, soap was a fairly late invention. Yeah, not to mention that having water available to wash with... Uh, in these situations, I can imagine clean water sometimes wasn't easy to come by. And if you had it, you'd be more likely to drink it than use it to wash your clothes. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, the civilians would have had access to regular water supplies because obviously you're not going to live in an area where there's no water supply. But for the army, you know, you catch as catch can, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I, I imagine that, you know, if if you come across a town 
you know, that's 300 people and then you have a 300 person army. Yeah. That water supply is now trying to support 600 people and it, it can drastically change the circumstances. Oh, totally. Yeah. So one interesting thing to point out, um, we, we've been talking mostly about men, but it's interesting, as I mentioned in my last episode, women in the camp, uh, there were women in the camp and they fulfilled a variety of roles, most of them uh, supplementary um, logistical roles, um, acting as, as washerwomen or servants, um, some sex workers. Um, yeah, just keeping things going. Yeah, keeping things going. <laughs> uh, interestingly, most of the cooking would have been done by lower-ranked soldiers, uh, but I'm sure there were, were women cooks as, as well. But um, a lot of these servant women would be expected to help comb the lice out of the hair of the men as, as well as each other, which is an important thing to keep in mind, as armies with women in the camp were probably more resistant to typhus than those without, uh, especially when you factor in the washerwomen. And you'll occasionally read about the expulsion of women from the camps of the armies, um, often whose leaders are particularly devout or just don't have enough food to go around. Um, in terms of this specific incident in Spain, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella were certainly devout, but I have no evidence that women were expelled from the camp. So uh, that's just, it's generally more something to keep in mind if you're learning about the Crusades or uh, things like that. Now, in the Middle Ages, it was understood that clothes started to smell if they weren't changed for a long time. Again, getting back to aesthetics versus hygiene. Um, and since they had noses, this was not something that was encouraged. But again, the standards here were maybe lower than we would expect in modern times. Many soldiers may not have had changes of clothing, though the old yarn about just having the clothes on their backs seems a bit extreme to me. Um, a change of underwear isn't that heavy. Um but uh, we do have ample evidence of the presence of washerwomen in the army camps, and they would have helped keep things somewhat hygienic, and presumably... While your clothes are being washed. You're not running around completely naked, although they were less uh, uptight about these things than we are today. Still, um, how often these soldiers washed their clothing, and if the service was available to common soldiers, we don't have great evidence. But there were a really good number of them in general, uh, of the washerwomen, so maybe common soldiers would have been able to get their clothing washed on, on special occasions or sometimes. It probably was an accessible service, I think. Uh, but again, that's speculation a little bit. In any case, the evidence we have is that the outer garments weren't actually washed that much as they were probably too delicate. Uh, we, we should keep in mind that modern a lot of modern sewing and weaving techniques weren't available, and some of these clothes were really fancy. That's an issue there too. But the undergarments that actually were in contact with the skin, they were washed regularly in a process that involved agitation in water, and then they would be smoked over a fire, which is interesting. That, that's pretty common. The smoke was helped... It was felt that the smoke helped make the clothing hygienic. So this is actually a hygienic concern. Um, soap was completely unavailable, but... Um, it should be mentioned that in the worldview of the Middle Ages, smells were thought to convey illness. So uh, if you perfume the clothing by exposing it to smoke, you're, you're banishing the bad smells. So that's potentially that, that's, that was the thought process if they were giving it that much thought. Um, yeah, Middle Ages downy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I actually don't know too much about lice. Lice? Yeah. 
so I, clearly I don't know too much about lice um, and their ability to survive different kinds of washing environments. Uh, Raven, you might know a little bit more about this. Uh, how would they deal with, you know, if the method is that you're soaking the clothing in a stream and then sort of beating it up against a rock and then smoking it over a fire, uh, would that have done anything to dislodge lice? Yeah, any anyone who's ever dealt with uh, having their, you know, trying to de-louse their children mm. can tell you they're incredibly hardy little creatures. Yeah. Um, if, if you are so inclined i know most people this type of thing freaks them out but if you if you look at the like just google images lice their legs are actually curved to hold on to hairs so you can imagine like those those like kind of hook like legs easily can go into the fibers of of clothing and just hold mm-hmm. on so um i mean i've never done any experiments <laughs> sure. on this but i but but I imagine that um, you know it would kill some of them, but but a lot of them would end up uh, actually surviving the process. Yeah. So um, now we know that if you're trying to wash lice off of clothing, the water has to be at least 130 degrees Fahrenheit or 54 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Then it would be hot enough to actually kill mm-hmm. them. In in the smoke situation, I am totally speculating just just off of what I know about insect physiology. So um, the smoke from the fire would produce a lot of carbon dioxide, which basically makes the lice pass out. Sure, I mean that makes sense. Uh, you know, in, a, in in a similar way that you know, if if we don't get enough oxygen, yeah. we pass out. <laughs> um, so it's possible that, you know, if they smoked them and then they shook the clothes out, it might have dislodged some of the lice. Um, really high doses of CO2 for a yeah. long time might have actually killed the lice. Um, but to be totally honest, I doubt its effectiveness yeah. um, of, of totally um, sanitizing the clothes. Uh, there's probably at least a few that would have survived. Sure. And... Um, and given that they were smoking these things sort of outdoors, uh, the CO2 concentrations were probably not that high. <laughs> right, right. But it, but in actuality, it like, actually doesn't take oh. that much CO2 to knock out an insect. Okay. So, um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's actually a really interesting yeah. idea. Uh, so... Um, the, the heat actually would also be a really interesting part of it because that's how we kill bed bugs. Like, they just set up tents and then they put like furniture items in these tents and then they just crank up the heat inside of the tent so it like just the heat you know how hot smoke can be like the heat might have also yeah i could see that so maybe it helped anyway so um yeah (laughs) but but like when you when you think about it even if you kill the lice off of your shirt it doesn't really help if you then go to bed and you haven't you know, done the same process with right. your bedding or your outer clothes, because, you know, if they're, they're in your bedding, they're certainly yeah. on your outer clothes. And then they just move from your outer clothes onto the yeah. shirt you just cleaned. And, you know, you're kind of in the same situation. Like, even if you killed them all, uh, you, you kind of have to do it like more extensively yeah, sure. than just like one clothing item at a time, which, you know, they, they probably wouldn't have thought yeah. to do. So, yeah, in, in terms of the, the sleeping gear, um, I mean, the the thing I just learned recently, that a lot of soldiers just didn't get tents. So they would 
you know, take whatever shelter they could. There would be under wagons and trees and bushes. Um, and I'm assuming that they had some kind of like water resistant blanket or something. Cause otherwise I can't imagine a common soldier lasting very long. And I mean, Northern Europe rains and is cold. Yeah. So <laughs> they must've had something, but uh, what it was, let's just assume that they had some sort of uh, blanket set of some kind. Um, yeah. Or like an animal skin or something to sleep on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some, something like that. And then for those who did have tents, uh, we have a fairly reasonable amount of evidence that the tents were really crowded unless you're like the king. Um, nobility would sleep with, with a fairly high number of, of bunkmates. Uh, any sleeping linens that were changed, it, it probably happened with a fairly grim infrequency. Uh, we know that civilians probably changed the straw stuffing in their mattresses on something like a yearly or bi-yearly basis because they actually like make a deal out of it in the records. They, they talk about how like, Oh, it's a special time. We're changing the mattress. <laughs> We're dumping out all the bug infested straw. So we, we can probably presume that the better sort of soldiers may have brought some kind of mattress along and maybe it was, you know, because it was used on campaign, it wasn't their normal mattress. Maybe it got changed more frequently, but, but we're, we're taking a, a, a lot of leaps there. Uh, hold on one sec. My cat's going to unplug my computer. <laughs> yeah, that's the benefit of shutting yourself in a yeah. closet. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, <laughs> for those who weren't like really in the high mobility, we're, we're talking probably again about those waterproof, water-resistant blankets and not too much else, just sort of flopping down on the ground. Um, again, all this stuff probably, it would have been washed by the washerwomen at, at some frequency, but we sort of don't have a, a way of getting to how much or how often. Given that the civilians were used to changing their mattresses yearly, we I wouldn't expect that it would be very often. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, we should also just say that the soldiers lived in a fairly close proximity to animals. Um, the nobility would be expected to see to the care of their horses on a very regular basis. Um, and as we discussed last episode in, in my show, uh, there were also just cavalry troopers who may or may not have been noble. They would have had at least two horses. Um, and depending on the class and what part of the cavalry they were in, they could have had as many as five, um, five horses to see to. So that's, that's a fair amount of horses in an army. Um, there also would have been oxen, mules, and, and just normal draft horses for hauling supply wagons around. Um, and depending on the time period, you're talking about maybe artillery and siege, siege equipment, and then just generally the baggage. Then the camp would have been full of various and sundry other uh, livestock items, uh, depending on what the army was doing. In this time period, we didn't have refrigeration, and though we had some rudimentary preservation techniques, the best way to keep meat 
dairy and eggs fresh in the Middle Ages was to have the relevant livestock with you at all times and alive until you wanted them. For raids, uh, it would have been maybe a little bit less likely, though of course stealing livestock is a long and storied tradition. Uh, In any event, uh, a more complete army would have had probably herds of cattle, uh, pigs would have been going around the the camp eating trash. Um, They would have all been driven along with the army. Flocks of chickens probably would have been kept in cages on the carts. And then, you know, armies since time immemorial have adopted dogs and cats to come along with them. Uh, That's probably not uncommon. Uh, And then by all accounts, these smaller animals, they they probably had the run of the camp um, and they would have rubbed shoulders with less welcomed guests like rats and mice um, who were attracted by the camp refuse, which uh, we are going to come back to the refuse a little bit later, I, I assure you. Yeah, living in close quarters with animals uh, can be a serious issue. If a, so, so there's something called zoonotic diseases, where humans basically catch diseases that are normally an animal disease. And uh, in, in these cases, it can be a serious threat because the human immune system hasn't kind of co-evolved with this disease. Right, that makes sense. So. Yeah, so anthrax is a huge, um, you know, one of those examples that a lot of people have mm-hmm. heard of. So it's it's an example of a disease of cattle and goats. Uh, so so when people are living in close proximity to these animals, uh, the the animal has the disease. Um, they're defecating on the ground. It dries out, and then they go to move, and it this dust kicks up into the air. And you can imagine lots of people marching. There's lots of dust in the air. And so they're breathing this in. They get um, anthrax into their lungs. And so so you can see just just how living just closely with these animals can cause all kinds of serious diseases. Yeah, totally. So, of course, our, our example of Baza was actually in the early modern period. And we haven't really gotten too detailed about living conditions for the armies in the early modern period. Um, I, I would just say that it's basically the same, only more so. Um, there would be a, a higher proportion of infantry. The army sizes would have been larger. Um, organization of the camps might have been a little bit better, but not by much. Um, and I, I, uniforms started to become a thing, and so it was more important for outer garments to be washed. But that's all later, and I don't think it's different enough to make a huge difference. Um mm. So just to close out our story about Baza, um, what eventually happened is that the commander of Baza did end up surrendering the city, but not for the reasons you might think. His garrison was well supplied, and the Spanish armies had done little damage to the city, but after several months of watching the soldiers outside the city drop dead, only to be replaced, he basically determined that the monarchs of the Spains would stop at nothing to take Baza. And given that the Principality of Granada was already riven by political problems and that the, the forces of the Christian kingdoms had already conquered most of Spain, it's sort of like, you see the writing on the wall, uh, maybe it's a good idea to pack it in while he could still get a good deal. And so he did. And he got a very good deal, uh, as it turns out. And uh, so in a way, the absurd mortality of the Spanish army uh, really helped convince him of the need to surrender. Yeah, it's kind of a, a in a in a flipped sort of way using a biological weapon, isn't it? Yeah, it it kind of reminds me of that story from the Art of War, where the generals would just order their soldiers to fall on their swords, and it horrified the enemy so much that they just 
gave up out of out of sheer shock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, the story of the Hashashin in in the Crusades is a similar thing. The the leader was ordering his soldiers to jump off the castle until uh, the the onlookers were like, "Okay, okay, we'll sign a good deal. It's fine." <laughs> Yeah, I just I don't want to deal with you, crazy. You're too crazy. <laughs> yeah, you're letting willing to let your own people die for for the sake of this cause. Then, um, you know, in mass, yeah. then you you must be more dedicated to this situation than I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> on that note, um, let's come back to the subject of refuse, uh, which I mentioned before. We decided to end the first segment of the crossover Wittenberg to Vampires there. So just be sure to listen to the second segment for the second half of our interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Should yeah, I not be? <laughs> no, you're fine. I'm yes. just making sure before I start talking. Because now that I've spent an hour and a half editing, I realize that I kept interrupting you during... <laughs> Oh no, I think we're like slightly misaligned and then like you could hear me sometimes. So yeah. Yeah. It's fine. That's yeah. But there'd be there'd be pauses and I'd be like Interesting. Raven, you're so great. Uh, You should start talking again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So uh intro B. Hi, this is the second part of our two-segment crossover between the Agora shows Wittenberg to Westphalia. If you haven't and Tiny listened to the first segment of Wittenberg to Vampires, please. What are you doing? Sorry, Ben just like came and attacked me through my blanket. One second. <laughs> I feel something like creepily poking me through this blanket. It was. Very uncomfortable. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to start over again. <clears throat> yep. If you haven't listened to the first set, if you haven't listened to the first segment of Whitberg to Vampires, we suggest that you check that out first. Let's start where we left off, shall we? Was that a weird pause? I always think. Okay. All right. Let me say the second sentence again. Okay. It was a weird pause. Yeah, go for it. Let's start where we left off, shall we? Sounds good. Okay. Sounds good. I always try to like remember awesome. what my okay. volume so... and cadence was for the.